0: If you have a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 2, whether it's your um, paper Bible or your digital Bible, that's where we're going to be at, is in Hebrews chapter 2. We've been in the book of Hebrews for, now this is the third week, and it's an interesting um, place to be. Um, Typically, uh, during the Christmas season, we're in Matthew or in Luke and some of those other um, passages, Old Testament passages that proclaim the coming of Christ. But Hebrews is important because it helps us to understand the meaning of Christmas. Whereas the other passages that give us the history of Christmas, they give us the the details and things like that, Hebrews helps us understand the meaning of Christmas. Years ago, the Italian fashion designer Versace said, I can't believe that God, with all of his power, with all of the power that he has, that he would have himself born in a stable it would have been much too uncomfortable. So says a fashion designer. Uh, But it is interesting to think about why would God allow his story to unfold in the way that he did? I mean, when we think about it, it is kind of odd to think about. For those of us that have grown up in Western culture around the church or in the church, we maybe don't think of it as being odd. And yet, when you think about it a little bit, it's like, why did God allow this to happen in the way that he did? Why Christmas at all? Why would God become man? Why come in such an unlikely manner? Versace might even say, God taking on flesh and being born in a stable is unbecoming. That's why Hebrews is important is because it helps us understand all of the whys that are associated with the Incarnation. This morning, we're going to be um, living in two verses to begin with, two verses in Hebrews, and we're going to spend a majority of our time there. We are going to jump around a little bit um, in the second chapter, but I really want us to pay attention to these two verses as we get started, and it's Hebrews two fourteen through 15. So starting at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. There are four reasons why we're celebrating Christmas in the way that we are, and they all build on each other. I'm going to walk through these, but you'll see them more clearly as we go through it together. So the first reason is to partake in our humanity so that by his death, number two, he could break the power of death, the third one. And then fourth, to deliver us from the fear of death. Why Christmas? To partake in our humanity. So that by his death, he could break the power of death and deliver us from the fear of death. Pay attention to the first words that we read from this passage. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. If you're a note taker, you can put a box around that word children. Um, It's interesting to think about because that's family language. So, There's the children, since they have flesh and blood, he too shared in there, and you can underline, humanity. You could almost put a quote around shared, because that's very important. He shared in their humanity. Why Christmas? Christmas is the celebration of God becoming human, which some would say is unbecoming of God. So that is really important because it gives us the reason. So that by his death, now think about it. This is more profound when we dig into it. God cannot die. You can't die if you're God. And so he came to die. But in order to do that, He had to take on flesh and blood, the flesh and blood of humanity, in order to fully identify with us. He had to fully identify in every way, including death. One of the words that we use to describe Jesus stepping out of heaven is that in this, God condescends when he takes on flesh. Because Jesus is infinitely great and he's infinitely good. I don't think that we can understand that fully this side of heaven is, is. We can't understand how great and how good he really is. He's so good and so great that if we were to try to put it all into words, we'd run out of words and run out of pages and, and we'd find those words are so feeble. Because he is infinitely good and infinitely great. He is higher than the heaven's. He is creator and savior. And all of that is wrapped up into one person. And yet he condescends, meaning he stoops down. Earlier in the passage, it says that he was made a little lower than the angels. And that's always interesting to think about. It actually first says that about us, that we were made a little lower than the angels. And yet God exalted us. But Jesus also for a little while. What that means is is that it wasn't true of him, but for a little while, he was made a little lower than the angels. And what that means is that in taking on flesh, he became like one of us, a little lower than the angels. He identified with all of us who also are lower than the angels. But Jesus doesn't lose his godness when he steps out of heaven. All of his godness and all of his goodness is still present in who he is. So the amazing part of his becoming less doesn't mean that he's less God. But it does mean that he willingly chooses to have less advantage. And he never exploits his position for his own gain. He condescends without ever being condescending. And he does this so that by becoming human, he could die. Think about that. In order to die, he had to share our flesh and blood. Third, Christmas happened in order to destroy the power of the one who holds the power of death, and that's the devil. You know, there's a sense in which is that as Christians, we don't know what to do with the devil. And some Christians blame him for everything. That um, every sin that we commit is because he enticed us to. Other Christians barely recognize him at all. We certainly um, shouldn't see him as behind all of our sin. You know, scripture is clear that we have a sin nature. Is is that means that it's it's more likely um, for us to be drawn to sin than it is to goodness. Although all of us have some of the goodness of God in us because we're made in His image, but the devil isn't behind all of our sin. At the same time, we shouldn't see him like we often see in the cartoons as being the devil on the shoulder with the angel on the other shoulder, always whispering to us, each one trying to win our attention. We should take him very seriously. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. I, I have a Maasai spear um, at home in, in the bedroom. Why do we have it in the bedroom of all places? I, I have all of, these, all of these things that I've gotten all over the world, and I keep on thinking I should probably you know, put them on the wall or something like that, but I have this Maasai spear. And you think about it is, is because a lion does not always distinguish between his prey. Yancey and I have met an individual who has killed a lion, a Maasai warrior. And it's interesting because you don't know when the lion is coming. You hope that you see the lion coming first. You can almost picture is there on the grass. On the grass is this, this lion kind of working his way through the grass unseen and unaware by his prey to pounce at just the right time. That's the description that we get of the enemy. And Peter says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. So we're to stand, but that standing is in the faith. He is not like other lions. He's actually more crafty than other lions. But we're to resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Here are some of the things that Scripture says about the devil He is a liar, John 8 44. He is a deceiver. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, and chapter 11, verse 14, and Ephesians six eleven. He is a destroyer, John 10, 10, He is a tempter, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. He is the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12, 9 and 10. And you might also go to the Old Testament, Job, where Satan accuses Job of following God only because God has been so good to him. He accuses us of all of our sins before God. Donald Barnhouse was asked at one point, "Is is what would a city look like if it was ruled by the devil? What would big timber look like if it was ruled by the devil? You might find his answer interesting. He said a city ruled by the devil might look something like we would not imagine. Every lawn would be mowed. It would have sidewalks. I actually threw that one in there. So, every bridge would be free from graffiti. No one would drive over the speed limit. I couldn't live there. Children would obey their parents. Marriages would remain intact. And every church would have beautiful buildings. However, the love of Jesus Christ would never be preached. Scripture says he comes as an angel of light. The devil isn't against moralism as long as it means that people don't know Jesus. One of the biggest mistakes that we can make as Christians is to teach our kids to be moral and forget to teach them to love Jesus. In fact, we teach them to love Jesus so that they will have the ethics of Jesus in their lives. We always have to have it in the right order. We teach them to love Jesus so that they can be like Jesus. Think about these things for a minute. It's as though the devil has a record of our sins to accuse us by. And that's why Jesus came. And because he came, we're set free by the power of Christ. Fourth reason for Christmas. Christmas happened to free us from the fear of death. Fear is very powerful. It's part of the reason the whole world shut down a year and a half ago. And it's why Many cities around the world continue to shut down. It's in part the reason why there are mask mandates and vaccines. And please do not think that I'm being political, because I'm not. I'm not trying to make a political statement, and I'm not speaking against these things. Nor am I speaking for them. I'm just saying that fear is prevalent this side of heaven. And don't think that you're immune to fear because you might be against such things. I've seen individuals absolutely against these things, reduced to asking for prayer and admitting they are scared. I can think about one situation in particular where someone said, I'm scared. I just want to be able to breathe. Please pray for me. This week, twice I was called to go be with people who have just been affected by death or were expecting the death of a loved one. The first one I was called to the hospital to be with someone who had just lost her husband immediately and unexpectedly. Thankfully, when I walked into the room and I said, I'm the chaplain, I'm sorry for your loss. And she said, "Is we know Jesus, so I'm okay. And then the next one was to be with someone who was shortly going to be with Jesus. Over the last 21 years of being a lead pastor, I've spent a lot of time with people who've experienced the death of a loved one and a lot of time with people who are dying. It was one of the things that I was most fearful of when I became a lead pastor Of course I'd had to, you know, do some of that when I was a youth pastor, but not much. And I did not want to do weddings and I did not want to do funerals. It's been a blessing to be with people in the celebrations of life. And interestingly, it's also been a blessing to be with those who are dying. It's forced me to process death a lot. And I'll be honest with you is, is it hasn't totally freed me from the fear of death or at the very least, the fear of the process of dying. When I had COVID and I had a very mild case, as many of you probably have had, that's not true for everyone, but I got to sleep more than I usually get to sleep and I came out with more energy than I had going into it. But I was laying on the couch downstairs trying to stay away from my family, and I was falling asleep, and all of a sudden there was a tinge of fear. And I said, if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Having to remind myself that in life and in death, I am called to honor God. And be careful about saying that you're not fearful of death. I've spent many hours with people who were not fearful until the final hours and many a time with people who in those last weeks and days began to look forward to seeing their Savior as they worked their way through the fear and toward embracing their Savior. Is it wrong for us to want to live? Absolutely not. That should be a very present part of our lives. We should value life. We should love life. We should should look forward to the life that we've been given and we should live every day To live life more fully and wholly. We have a God who is not a God of death. He is a God of life. And so we should embrace it. And we should fight against the death that we see in the world. And so live. Live powerfully. Live strongly. Live every day that you have. You do not know when you will go to be with the Lord. Very few people do. Some, but very few. Is the fear of death a sin? It can be. But it's a part of our fallen world. This is why Jesus came. He came to defeat death. John Owen, all the way back in 1648, wrote a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Jesus' words from Matthew 16 are that the power of the gospel is that the gates of Hades, the gates of death, would not prevail against the church because it's the church's job to proclaim life and life abundant in Jesus Christ through the forgiveness of sin. Jesus offers us the hope of life even while death is present in our world. Receiving Jesus is equated with receiving eternal life, John 3.16. Jesus' own death culminates in resurrection hope. Verse 15 here indicates that Christ achieves a definitive victory over death so that he can free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. There are three words that encapsulate all of chapter 2. Incarnation. Jesus became like us. Not just by taking on flesh. Hebrews two sixteen through 18 says, For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. This is where we should more than just read. We should feel the power of these words. Jesus knows. Jesus understands. Jesus experienced the things that we experienced. Did Jesus fear? Most likely. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and when he's praying to the Father, he's saying, He says, Father, take this cup from me, meaning the cross. I mean, he's literally sweating blood and saying, God, take this away from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. He knows. He understands. Think about this God experienced loss by literally giving Himself. Jesus experienced pain, loss, rejection, condemnation, and temptation. He understands all of our temptations because he was tempted. This is where identification comes in. And so the first word, incarnation. The second word, identification. He has identified with us in every way. And the end of this passage reminds us to look backward to the temptation and to the suffering of Christ. To find the encouragement to live in the present and to look forward into the future. So we look backward in order to meet our own fear and temptation. We remind ourselves that our Savior has gone through everything that we've gone through yet without sin. That he was victorious over all of those things and that his victory is like him being the champion. He goes and he fights the battle. And when he wins, we all win because we belong to the champion. As Christians, we're constantly looking back and looking forward, which was what? Advent is all about. is as we live in this season and celebrate this season, it's, it's what we call Advent. Advent means coming. And we remember is, is that in the Old Testament, they looked forward to the day when the Savior would come, and that's where their hope came from. And it really is, is that all of our hope is in him, And that we can have joy because of all that he's done for us. And so that coming, we look forward to his coming. And, and the first picture of that is the incarnation. And on Christmas Eve, we'll light the center candle, which is called the Christ candle, as we celebrate Christmas together. Let's see if I can trip up here. So there's incarnation. And then there's identification. He knows and he understands. And because he knows, he is gentle, he's forgiving, he's loving, and he's caring. Have you been rejected at some time? He has too. Have you been looked down on? He has too. Do you struggle with sin? He was tempted. He knows the power of temptation. He's the only one who's never failed, and he never failed so that he could be the one who's there for those who have. He knows our frailties, our foibles, and our failures. And he still invites us in. And the invitation is is to come to the Savior who invites you in and understands. He became weak so that you could be made strong. He stepped out of heaven and took on flesh so that you could be taken into his heavenly kingdom. That's called incorporation. The third word that I wanted you to remember. So there's incarnation. There's identification. He identified with everything that we go through. And incorporation. Incorporation is, um, is beautiful. In verse 14, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Notice the language here. It's the language of belonging and family. Children, brothers and sisters, There's an old hymn. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm part of the family, the family of God. Children. Notice the language earlier in the passage in verses 10 and 11. And bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Sons and daughters. And he is not ashamed. Why is he not ashamed? It says that he's bringing many sons and daughters to glory. How will this be done? Well, in doing what was unbecoming of God, in stepping out of heaven, God made what was unbecoming becoming for us. It says, it is fitting. Jesus shared in our humanity so that we could become like him, not meaning God, but we're made like him when our sins are forgiven and we are made holy. Verse 11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to be To call them brothers and sisters. He makes you holy. What you cannot do on your own, he does for you. This means that he brings his rightness and his goodness into your life by overlooking those faults and foibles and flaws that I referred to. Humanity and holiness unite to bring us into the family of God. I don't know what you're doing this afternoon. I don't know what you're doing this week, but I know what he's doing. He's making you holy. Be like him and be free. Be free from the fear of death. Now being free means that we're free to choose sin. But he came to free us from the slavery of sin and death. To free us. So that we can be, as Scripture says, free indeed. One last thing there are two fours in this passage, not the number four. Fours, F O R. Learn to love the fours in Scripture because all of our benefits are in the fours. Earlier, it was fitting for Him to be made like us. So that atonement can be made for our sins. Verse 16. For surely it is not the angels that he helps. It's us. And for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become the merciful high priest And service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. And so we think about the Old Testament where the people of God would bring a sacrifice to the priest. And the priest would sacrifice on their behalf, literally spilling the blood of a living being. And that reminds us that God is just, that he must judge sin. And that because sin is so horrible... that it requires the shedding of blood, meaning is is that sin actually leads to death. And every time the people brought a sacrifice, they were reminded that sin and death are equated with each other. And God looks at it and he says, there has to be a perfect sacrifice and that perfect sacrifice only I can make. But in order to do that, I need to step out of heaven and become one of them. And he becomes the perfect sacrifice, but he also becomes the priest who makes the sacrifice. He is both the sacrifice and he's the priest. And what does the priest do? He mediates for the people. He mediates between God and man, and he says, Lord, accept them. This sin is paid for. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. This is Jesus going to the cross. There's all these record of wrongs and the devil's there saying is they don't deserve it, Lord. They don't deserve it. They're sinners. Look at all the sin they've committed. Look at all of the hatred and the lies and the lust and the stealing and, and all of the things that these people have done. And Jesus says, yes, yes. All of that sin, all of the record of wrongs, it must be paid for. I'll make the sacrifice. And we're told that he made the sacrifice by nailing it to the cross. By becoming the sacrifice for all of the sins and all of those sins are nailed to the cross. And that Jesus takes our sin and he dies for it. That he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And no more sacrifice is needed because he is the perfect savior. And it's for this reason that we can say, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Would you stand with me? God loves you. He cares for you more than you can possibly imagine. He stepped out of heaven for you. The incarnation. He identified with everything that you've already gone through and will go through. Identification. He took on flesh. welcomes you into the family of God and corporation. And so we can say, thank you, Jesus, and Merry Christmas. We're going to close with you actually being able to do that. Would you, as you start a new week, would you take some time to say Merry Christmas to the people around you? May the Lord bless you, and may you be the light of Christ in our community. Amen, and Merry Christmas.